Well, I do want to invite you to open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 1, and you heard that correctly, Leviticus chapter 1. So let me just confess that in nearly 25 years of pastoral ministry, I have never preached from the book of Leviticus. I suspect that many of you have never heard a sermon out of the book of Leviticus. I'm actually reading through it devotionally right now, and I've been just reminded of how important and foundational this book is. Now, we're embarking on a mini-series of sorts uh, today, not a series in Leviticus, just this message out of Leviticus, but the series is called A Primer on Worship. Now, we have been kind of out of practice in one sense of doing what we are beginning to do today. The past 15 months or so, church has looked different. We had some limited in-person gatherings from about... June to November last year. We're now back to that sort of 50-person limit. We're trying to figure things out. But as things get back to normal, I think it's good for us to revisit why is it that we do what we do when we gather as a church? What is it that allows us to gather? And so we're going to begin with Leviticus chapter 1. And before I read the passage, I want to begin just by reading a short story for you. Every Friday afternoon for years, an older man made his way down to a pier on a beach in Florida. And every Friday afternoon, he went through the same ritual. At about sunset, he carried a bucket of shrimp to the beach with him. And the shrimp were not for him or for the fish. They were for the seagulls. And when the gulls saw him on the pier with his bucket, they would come to him one by one until they surrounded him with screeching, begging, and flapping their wings. He would take the shrimp out of the bucket, and he would throw a few at a time to the hungry gulls, and then he would make his way home. So why did he go through that ritual every Friday afternoon? Well, that man was Eddie Rickenbacker. He was an Air Force captain in World War II. He and seven other men were flying a B-17 across the Pacific to deliver a message to General Douglas MacArthur. When the crew became lost, the fuel ran out and the plane went down. Miraculously, they all made it out of the plane and onto a life raft. And on that raft, day after day, they fought the sun and the sharks. And when their rations ran out, they fought the hunger. On the eighth day, they had no food and no water. That afternoon, they had a devotional time together. They prayed for a miracle, and then they tried to rest. Rickenbacker was dozing with his hat over his eyes, and something landed on his head. It was a seagull. He knew that if he could catch it, that seagull meant their survival. And amazingly, he did catch it. The eight men shared the meat, and they used the intestines for fish bait. Rickenbacker knew that God had rescued them with that seagull, and he never forgot that miracle. So every Friday afternoon until he died, he made his way down to that pier with that bucket of shrimp. It was a way of saying, thank you, God, for saving my life. And that brings us to the book of Exodus. If you've read it, then you know that it is filled with rituals. 
The book of Leviticus takes place after God rescues the Israelites from their slavery in Egypt. And I want, you, I want to invite you to stand, those of you who are here, for the reading of God's Word. As we look at this first ritual we encounter in the book of Leviticus, and it says this, The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. And say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons and and the priests shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat on the wood that is on the fire on the altar." But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish, and he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar, and he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat, and the priest shall arrange it on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons, and the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out of the sides, the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place for ashes. He shall tear it open by its wings, but shall not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. You may be seated. So slaughter an animal. Throw the blood against the sides of the altar. Wash the entrails and legs with water and burn everything else. What on earth are we supposed to do with all of that? It's the first week back to in-person gatherings. And this is the passage I chose. Now, I've told some of you before that I started reading the Bible shortly before I became a Christian. I started where you start with any book at the beginning I made it through Genesis, I made it through Exodus, I made it about halfway through the book of Leviticus before I was thoroughly confused. Even a passage like this one can be a confusing one. So I want to try to help you understand it. This series is called A Primer on Worship. And the first question that we need to answer about worship is how is it that you and I as sinful people can worship a holy God. 
can come into the presence of a holy God. And so in this first message, I want to highlight three big truths that we learn about worship from Leviticus chapter 1. And the first one is that God invites us to worship and instructs us how to worship. I'm actually going to take those in reverse order and begin with the fact that God instructs us how we are to worship. Notice how verse 1 begins. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Now, the name of this book in our English Bibles is Leviticus. I think that's actually an unfortunate name. We got that name from the Latin Vulgate translation of the Old Testament, it simply means pertaining to the Levites. In the Hebrew Bible, the name for this book comes from the first word of the Hebrew text, Vayikra, the Lord called. And that's how the book begins. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him. And that little phrase, the Lord spoke to Moses, appears 38 times in the book of Leviticus. The phrase, the Lord commanded Moses, appears another 18 times. So you know how in some versions of the New Testament, we have put the words of Jesus in red? If you were to do that with the Old Testament, and you were to put all the words of the Lord, all the words of Yahweh in red, the reddest book in the Old Testament would be the book of Leviticus. 56 times in this book. God has something to say to Moses, and most often what he has to say to Moses pertains to stipulations about how he is to be worshipped. The book of Leviticus is bookended with this theme. We've seen how it begins. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him. Listen to the way it ends. These are the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses for the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. Now, the fact that God instructs us how we're supposed to worship deserves more than just a passing comment. You know, when most of us think about worship today, we tend to think of it along the lines of our preferences, right? I, I really like this style or this format. And the church growth industry is filled with this kind of stuff. Leviticus might be, in fact, the first thing you're not supposed to do preaching from it. I remember doing or being at a ministry conference where one prominent megachurch pastor said something along the lines of, look, we don't do communion as a church because it might make some people feel like outsiders. We don't want to exclude anyone. Now, now you can understand the motive for that, right? But given that the two ordinances that the Lord has given to the church are baptism and communion, that ought to be our starting place. And then we build out from there. Now, there are different philosophies connected with what ought to happen when the church gathers for worship. There are really two approaches. There's what's been termed the regulative principle. This is the idea that the only thing that should happen is that which has been expressly commanded by God. And this places things like performative worship, drama, announcements, baby de even baby dedications on the outside of what should happen when a church gathers for worship. The other approach is, is called the normative principle. This is to say that everything is sort of fair game unless it is expressly forbidden by God. 
Now, as a church, we abide by the normative principle. We value, we do see value in things like announcements, child dedications, the use of instruments that are not mentioned in the Bible. But let me also say that the longer I'm in ministry, the less comfortable I am with performative worship, which often distracts rather than enhances the worship of God. At the very least, our starting place for worship ought to be looking at the patterns and the practices that we find in Scripture rather than beginning with the aspects of of our culture that we think we can incorporate for the sake of relevance. As an aside, our staff is currently reading a book entitled Analog Church, Why We Need Real People, Places, and Things in the Digital Age. It came out just pre-COVID, so it's not a response. But that book opens with an anecdote about a millennial named Jake. Jake is an EDM, that's an electronic dance music artist. Think packed out nightclubs, laser lights, video displays, synchronized to deafening music, high energy dance music. And Jake describes a recent visit to a church like this. The worship gathering was held in a concert venue in a downtown area. As he walked into the dimly lit room, he squinted his eyes to see through the smoke machine fog. As the band began to play, laser lights cut through the haze, synchronized to the beat of the music, which was played at concert level volume. A large screen behind the band played the lyrics of the songs in dramatic moving text against a backdrop. Backdrop of abstract digital visuals. After the music, the teaching pastor popped up on screen to deliver the message from a different location 20 miles away. Describing the experience, Jake said, I didn't feel cool enough to be there. The author makes this point. When Jake steps into a church, he isn't hoping it will look, sound, and feel like everything else he's part of. He isn't searching for relevance. He's not concerned with the church being cool, hip, or digitally savvy enough for him. He's on the hunt for something else altogether. Yeah, I think he's actually searching for Leviticus chapter 1. Or at least he's searching for the God we meet in Leviticus chapter 1. His quest is not to find a cool place to hang out. His search is for a place that will help him understand how to repair his broken relationship with God. Now, my point is not about fog machines or laser lights or video teaching. I mean, we've made lots of use of video teaching over the last 15 months or so. My point is that our starting place ought to be what God has instructed us about worship and not our personal preferences or what we think might make us more relevant. Our starting place ought to be, how can sinful people draw near to a holy God? So God instructs his people how they're supposed to worship. He gives instructions here in Leviticus chapter 1 about the burnt offering. And if you read through the first seven chapters of Leviticus, you will find instructions about five different types of offerings. The burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering. And the instructions for each of those offerings is detailed just like this one is. The point is that God hasn't left, uh, left us to guess how we're supposed to worship. He didn't leave the Israelites how to guess. He hasn't left us to guess. 
Now, now you might push back at this point, and I would welcome the pushback, but aren't these instructions for the Israelites? I mean, we don't do a burnt offering or a grain offering or a peace offering. We don't sacrifice any animals. And you would be right about the specific instructions. But the theology behind these instructions has not changed with time. In a few minutes, we will look at how the instructions here in Leviticus chapter 1 are to be applied by Christians today. Now, I said that God both invites and instructs us. Let's look at the invitation part of that. Verse 2 says, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offspring or your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. The word translated bring is the causative form of the verb that means to draw near. So we could translate it as when any one of you draws near to God, you shall draw near with your offering. Now, now maybe that doesn't strike you as all that startling. But the reason it should startle us is because the one who offers or invites us to draw near is God himself. God invites us to draw near to him in worship. You know, a bunch of years ago now, I developed a bit of a friendship with a guy who was sort of, you know, Christian famous. He was popular on the conference speaking circuit. He had authored a bunch of books that sold quite well. His fame was on the rise. And he messaged me one time asking if I would like to come to to play a round of golf with him and some friends down in Bellingham. Now, this guy who was, I remember just thinking at the time, that was really cool. I mean, this guy who was sort of a sought after speaker and teacher invited me to come hang out with him for the day. Now, you can multiply that by about infinity to get a sense of how we should feel when the Lord invites us to draw near to him in worship. The Lord, the creator, the one who sustains everything, says to you and says to me, come near. When any one of you brings draws near with an offering. I think it's also significant that this passage outlines three different types of burnt offerings, right? One from the herd, one from the flock, and one from the birds. Now, those offerings are actually given in descending economic value. The offering you brought to God was to be the best you had to offer. It was to be an animal without blemish or defect. But not everyone could afford a male bull. And so the law made provisions for that. Later in Leviticus, we read this, but if he cannot afford an animal from the flock, then he may bring to the Lord two turtle doves or two young pigeons as a penalty for guilt for his sin. One as a sin offering, the other as a burnt offering. See, worship was not sort of an exclusive club. Everyone, rich or poor, was invited to participate. So this is good news. God invites us to worship. He instructs us how to worship. But there is a problem. 
The problem is that God is holy and pure and we are sinful. So how can we approach God? And this is connected to the second thing we ought to understand from this passage, which is that we cannot draw near to God without a sacrifice. Verse 3 says this, If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. The last line of verse 3 sounds utterly foreign to us. That he may be accepted by the Lord. See, we've reversed this, right? We think that God needs to be, to, God needs to do something to be accepted by us. One of C.S. Lewis's lesser known books is a short book entitled God in the Dock. And the word dock in that title is not referring to the kind of dock you find down at the lake, but the prisoner's dock, the little bench or booth that a prisoner would sit in while under cross-examination. And Lewis's contention is that rather than seeing ourselves as the ones who are sitting in the prisoner's dock being examined by God, we've reversed it and we put God in the dock and we want to examine him. We think and live as if God needs to justify himself to us, but actually the opposite is true. And the truth we need to understand is that our sin separates us from God. That without an offering that makes atonement for our sins, we are not acceptable to God. We cannot be in his presence. Now that offends modern sensibilities, I know. The Bible tells us that God is absolutely holy, absolutely pure, that sin cannot be in his presence. And so the question the book of Leviticus answers is how can sinful people be in a right relationship with a holy God? And the answer is highlighted in the grace that we see in these offerings. Three different variations of the same offering are mentioned. I've already mentioned the reason why the three of them are mentioned, but let's just look at the specifics from the first one. Leviticus begins with the burnt offering. This was the most expensive of all the offerings you could offer because this is the only one. Everything gets consumed on the altar. You don't share it as a meal. And <clears throat> if the offering was from the herd, you were supposed to bring a male animal without Blemish. Verse 4 then describes the beginning of that process. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Really, two main things the burnt offering was meant to accomplish. The first purpose is connected with the idea of a ransom or a substitute. Note the symbolism. You would bring the animal... And you would place your hand on the head of the animal. It was a picture of transference. Your sin was being transferred to that animal and it would act as your substitute. That was the connection. Your sin and guilt symbolically transferred to the animal. You were in essence saying, look, my sins are worthy of death. Please accept this animal as a substitute for me. Your sin was transferred to the animal so that the animal died the death you deserved. That's what it means when it says the animal shall make atonement for him. 
Same thing was true of the blood. Verse 5 says that then he shall kill the bull before the Lord and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that's at the entrance to the tent of meeting. The significance of that is spelled out later in the book of Leviticus where it says, for the life of a creature is in the blood and I have appointed it to you to make atonement on the altar for your lives since it is the lifeblood that makes atonement. Now that word atonement is a key word in the book of Leviticus. It appears 53 times in Leviticus and only 43 times in all the rest of the Old Testament. The basic meaning of the word is reconciliation between two warring parties. In this case, the two warring parties are us and God. And you get a sense of the word's meaning by just breaking it into its parts at one mint. Right? This is the pro- process whereby we become at one with God. That's what it means to make atonement. And the prescription here is a burnt offering. In order to really understand this, we have to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, God blessed Adam and Eve with access to all the glories of his creation. He instructed them that they were free to eat from every tree in the garden except one, except the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They disobeyed God's command, which led to both spiritual death And physical death. Their relationship with God was broken. And physical death came into the world. They would no longer live forever. Sin leads to death. That's part of the reason the animal had to die in this offering. It was a picture of the fact that sin makes us worthy of death. But there's something we shouldn't miss in all of this. God could have just said, well, that's it. I mean, you broke my commandment. You're done. And he would have been entirely justified in doing so. But instead, God issued a way of atonement. There is a way for sinful people to be in right relationship with God. And the institution of the burnt offering wasn't the beginning of this. It was just the ritual way to express it. The first expression of the fact that God provides a way of atonement is also found back in the Garden of Eden. After Adam and Eve had eaten that forbidden fruit, they immediately became aware of their nakedness, right? They tried to hide from one another. They tried to hide from God. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover their nakedness. But after confronting them for their sin, there's an often missed note of grace. Near the end of the chapter in Genesis 3, it says, the Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. The verse says that God made garments of skin to be their coverings. So where did the garments of skin come from? Well, it would have necessitated a sacrifice. This is God's method for covering sin. Now, hopefully you see the beauty of the gospel in that. We broke the relationship with God, but God makes a way of atonement. He makes a way for our sins to be covered and dealt with. He makes a way for our relationship to be restored. And this takes us to the third truth we find here, which is that God provides the method 
and the means for our worship. So God not only invites us to worship, he he not only instructs us how to worship, he also provides the means for our worship. And here the method and means for worship was the burnt offering. You were to bring the animal to the tent of meeting, you were to slaughter it, offer it to God on the altar, and your sins would be atoned for. Now, maybe you hear that, and the question you have is, is that really true? Could that possibly pay for a person's sins? Is it possible that that offering an animal can make atonement for our sin and put us in right relationship with God? Now, when you read through the book of Leviticus and you read through the instructions about all the various sacrifices, it it would seem so. Leviticus chapter 4 is representative of what we read so many times in Leviticus. It says, he is to offer this bull just as he did with the bull in the sin offering. He will offer it the same way. So the priest will make atonement on their behalf and they will be forgiven. They will be forgiven. Now, maybe when you hear that, the, the words from the New Testament sort of ring in your ears. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4 states the matter clearly. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So if that is true, then how did the offering of an animal somehow grant a person forgiveness and make atonement for their sins? Well, there's a couple reasons why it couldn't actually fully do that. One is the simple fact that we will sin again. I mean, this is why the people had to keep coming back again and again, offering animals repeatedly. I mean, I can't even begin to imagine how many bulls, how many birds I would have had to offer to try to make atonement for my sin. But there's another more fundamental reason. That animal, costly though it was, was not an adequate payment for your life. It was a substitute, but it was a lesser substitute, right? It would sort of be like smashing up a Lamborghini and saying, look, just take my 1986 Dodge Caravan in exchange. Accept that as a payment. So if that's the case, then why did God accept this as a means of atonement or payment? One Old Testament scholar used the analogy of a check, and I actually think this is probably the best analogy that I've heard. Now, some of you are too young to know what a check is or was, right? A check is a method of payment. You write a check to cover a debt that you owe. Now, now in the past, it could be that you would go to the grocery store and, you know, they would say, well, the bill is $329 and you would simply write a check for $329 and they would say, okay, take your groceries and go. Now, in reality, they actually had no idea how much money you had or didn't have in the bank. And often people would write checks. And when that grocery store went to the bank to cash them, they would say, look, we're sorry. There's not enough money in that person's account to cover that check. It bounced. An atoning sacrifice in the Old Testament, here's why it can be compared to the writing of a check. Now, the form of the check was the animal sacrifice that you offered. That animal's lifeblood was given in your place. 
And the Lord in his grace received the check, declared the debt to be paid, graciously assured that the person was forgiven. But here's the thing. God did not cash the check. In fact, God knew that check would bounce. So why did he accept it as payment? Because he knew that one day there would be enough money in the account to cover the debt. And this is what Leviticus points us to. See, when Jesus gave his lifeblood as the perfect and final ransom payment to cover the debt of sin, it covered all of it. The entire sacrificial system that we read about in the book of Leviticus was pointing forward to the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus became our substitute. He gave his life in the place of ours. The New Testament book of Hebrews is actually really just a commentary on the book of Leviticus. I could read all of chapter 10 for you, but let me just read some highlights. Verse 1 of that chapter says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. It's just that the law was just a shadow. What we read in Leviticus 1 is just a shadow of the greater reality that was to come. In verses 12 to 14 of that chapter, it says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Or how about these verses, 19 to 22 from that chapter? We read them as part of our confession and assurance this morning. Therefore, brothers or brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near, there's that word, with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So we began with the question, how can sinful people draw near to a holy God? It's through Jesus. It's because of the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. Every time we gather for worship as a church, we are declaring our sins have been atoned for. Forgiveness has been granted to us. We stand in God's presence in full confidence because in essence, we have placed our hand on Jesus and allowed him to take our place. He gets the curse that we deserve, the death that we deserve, and we get all of the blessings. 
And so as we think about worship, the first thing to understand is that God has made a way for us to worship and that because of that, we actually respond with great joy. We come in as forgiven people, as people who have been granted new life and worship flows out of that. So my prayer for you is that as we meditate on us, as, as we think on this, that our hearts are filled with just wonder at what God has done for us in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we recognize that you are a holy God. We sing that. We know the words. And yet, as we stop to really ponder what that means, that you are perfect, you're absolutely pure, sin cannot be in your presence. We are amazed that we can come, not timidly, but we can come boldly in full confidence and assurance because you have pardoned our sins, you have made us new, and you have looked on Jesus and his righteousness, and credited that to us, God. We pray we would have hearts that are full of worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.